I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I think Duran Duran said it best. Tried to pull you back, but you were buried in the sand in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 31, which begins with the destruction of the Nux car, and it ends with Max not feeling okay, which I think is a good way to summarize it. Yeah, we'll get into it in a little bit more detail, but a broad stroke of not feeling okay is very accurate. Of course, before we can even get to that point, we do have a round about 10 second chunk of this minute that is just the Nux car rolling and crumbling and pieces falling off of it and debris scattering across the sand. And poor Max, he is just getting flung all over the place. Is he the figure that we see ragdolling it towards the camera? Oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah, I'm seeing that in pausing it. It's definitely... Max, how on earth did he survive this? That is a good question. I clicked through frame by frame trying to follow the action here. Now, I already mentioned that the car is rolling. The fact that there is a spinning involved means that Max is out at the end of the chain, only being held in place by that connection. And he begins this minute up in the air. So that's already a bad position to be in. And after 11 frames that I've clicked through, he hits the ground for the first time. Now, this is him face down on the ground. I think you could argue that his entire body hits the ground at once, and then he bounces. His upper body is the first thing to bounce up, and his legs follow, and as he goes through this second time in the air, he looks completely bent backwards. That's sometime between 11 frames and 1 second 10 frames that he's just up in the air, and at one second, 10 frames, he hits the ground again, this time mostly on his head and shoulders. Like, that is the hit that would completely knock him out. And from that point, he's not going back up in the air, he's just being dragged along by the Nux car, which is continuing to slide and roll. And we actually lose sight of him completely at the two-second, two-frame mark. All of that would easily kill someone. Especially someone who has been giving blood all day. He would already be in a weakened state, although he hasn't shown any evidence thus far of being in a weakened state. This is Max, after all. We took some time and touched on that last week when Johnny and Niall were here, but I don't think we had anything conclusive, and I definitely didn't put in the legwork to research that further. <laughs> Neither did I, but I think it's safe to say that Max's current condition, including this crash and not including this crash, are not realistic. Having given blood all day... It's impossible to tell how much because we don't know how long. Plus the car crash, either one, he shouldn't be exerting himself so hard. He would have passed out by now. And this crash, I just, like I said before, I don't get it. Both things are just going to have to be chalked up to movie magic because we need our hero to survive throughout the movie. I like the inflection you put on hero there. Because Max... I'm not sure I would exactly classify him as an anti-hero, but he's certainly not your typical hero. Yeah, he's not another hero, because we don't need one of those. No, Tina was right, we don't need another hero. 
We're never getting beyond that, are we? <laughs> we need to get beyond that. You're right, right, right. Max is just not a normal human being. He is not necessarily superhuman, but he's at least Hemsworth level above average. After we lose sight of Max, we get a little bit more tumbling. We get to see the chain getting pulled. We see the engine of the Nux car drop out of the sky, and the war rig is driving away. And the last thing we see before everything fades to black is the road flare that Nux lit. And it drops down and sits there on the ground as darkness closes in around it. And I find it incredibly hard to believe, and I've got to chalk it up, like you said, to just, it's a movie. We need to ignore the fact that if this car was actually being disintegrated and pieces were flying all over the place, there was so much gasoline pooled in the bottom of that, some of it would have hit that flare. But because it's important that that doesn't happen... It doesn't happen. <laughs> it hits the ground, and we just focus in on it for a few seconds as darkness presses in onto the flare, which is very representative, very metaphorical for the next moment when we see Max. Basically, the same thing has happened to him. He's been dumped in the middle of the desert, and the darkness of death is pressing in on him. Although it's not really, because it's Max, and he's fine. I just thought of something. I think you could easily look at this road flare and say that this fade to black specifically is the end of Act 1. We've established our characters, we've introduced the conflict for the film, we've had one or two major action scenes, and now that's part one done. You think so? Because there is a whole group of major characters that has not been introduced yet, that is going to be introduced in the next sequence. Now, I'm not proficient at all at defining story structure like that. I definitely agree with you that this feels like the end of something. And it's certainly the end of this opening action sequence. And maybe it feels like an act of the movie because it took a half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very George Miller. I'm just not skilled enough to identify if it is the first act. And now we are moving on to the second act. Given the fact that by this point, we know pretty well who Max is as a person. We know pretty well who Nux is as a person. Furiosa has been established. Joe's been established. Those are pretty much our main four tentpole people in this story. We haven't seen the people eater yet. We haven't seen the bullet farmer. We haven't met any of the Vuvulini. I think act one ends here. And then act two is going to go from Max waking up in a couple of seconds until Max persuades everybody to turn around and go back. It's a long time. It is a long second act. That's a long second act. second act. Although hearing you talk it out that way, I think I agree with you. I don't think that the first act has to introduce every single one of the main characters. Mm -hmm. I don't see the people eater and the bullet farmer as main characters. I do see the wives as main characters. Yeah. But you're right. They are not tentpole characters. They are very, very supportive, supporting cast. And... You're right. We haven't taken the time to get to know each one of the wives yet. But we know they exist. We already know their motivations. We already know their location. We may not know how many there are, what their names are, what their personalities are yet, but we know a lot about them already. Enghard is a pretty good example of the type of person that we're going to see once we actually meet the other four wives in this harem. Now, granted, not all of them have the same personality. Don't get me wrong when I say that. But being bold enough to do something like this, 
it's indicative of the rest of them. So as we fade to black, we are met with three solid seconds of black screen. And now seems as good a time as any for me to throw in. I'm still listening to the You Are Awaited podcast, and I'm still picking up little things from Yuri and Travis. I'm still having trouble distinguishing who is speaking at any given time. It's one of the downsides to having two male hosts in a podcast that sound very similar to begin with, but I just won't focus on X said this, Y said that. They brought up the fact that it's interesting that in Beyond Thunderdome, you had a blind saxophonist, and here in Fury Road, we have a blind guitarist. They found that to be an interesting parallel that we're working with here. I am disappointed in myself, as I am whenever I miss things like this. I'm disappointed that we missed that. It's incredibly obvious. It's incredibly obvious, but it's also incredibly understandable because if you've got a metaphorical scale and you put Tun Tun Tattoo on one side and you put the Doof Warrior on the other, I'm just saying the scale's going to be heavily weighted in the guitarist's favor. I don't think that's a valid argument. (laughs) Because... I personally have been looking for those similarities. I have been looking for repeated imagery, repeated themes, and there have been so many. And to miss one that's right there in front of your face, I'm a little ashamed of myself. If it makes you feel any better, we haven't yet had it revealed to us that the Doof Warrior is blind. Excellent. When we find out that the Doof Warrior is blind, (laughs) I will make sure and bring up, hey, you know who else is blind? Thank goodness the Doof Warrior doesn't wear the same outfit, though. Big gangly guy up on top of a truck wearing a little sumo wrap thing. Wouldn't be the same as the red jumper. That's not a jumper. Whatever you call the onesie that he's wearing. I don't know. Long underwear? Yeah, it feels like a one-piece, like an old-school one-piece underwear. Like something you'd see out of a cartoon with a butt flap. Yes. There you go. They also brought up, because they were talking about Toxic Storm and everything like that, Nux has sprayed his face with the chrome spray he has prepared himself for death and he didn't die in the crash and so they posit that there's got to be some sort of inherent shame because he's going to show up eventually with this chrome spray paint on his face and he's going to be not dead so keep that in mind when he eventually shows up with the rest of the horde because i'm sure there are going to be people looking at him sideways on the more mechanical side They noted that it's interesting to see how vehicles have evolved over time. Like in the previous Mad Max movies, in Road Warrior, you had a lot of very regular looking vehicles that had maybe a few things painted on or mechanical things souped up about them. And then in Thunderdome, you had vehicles like the steam powered train truck thing and the cowhide car and things were starting to get a little bit more customized and oddball looking. And now we get to Fury Road and there's been this Darwinistic evolution of the cars over the course of the series. I like that you use the word evolution because I think it's a part of human nature to be creative and to want to express yourself, to want to personalize your belongings. And I love in these movies as civilization is breaking down and then trying to reform seeing what things are reestablished quickly creativity and self-expression was reestablished very quickly and not just the creative aspect of it but the adaptation in order to survive you've got people like the buzzards they are going up against mostly war boys i would assume and so they realize okay 
Warboys are unarmored and they throw thunder sticks. So we're going to put heavy armor and spikes on the outside of our cars. And so the vehicles that you see reflect the predators that they have to fight off. It's sort of like a finches thing where it depends on what kind of thing you eat, depends on what kind of vehicles you have. Like Joe has a bunch of Caltrop layers and pursuit vehicles that can tow things around because that's what he does. He goes out, he finds the vehicles, drags them back to the Citadel, and they've adapted to survive in the wasteland. Very much like a, a bird on an island that eats a specific type of food. You mentioned the car carriers. Even that's something that has evolved. In Road Warrior, the the Horde drove around with a tow truck, and it was pretty simple and pretty standard. It wasn't really souped up in any way, even. Didn't look it. It was just a tow truck. And they did the same thing. Vehicles were a high priority for them. And we see that evolution again. See all these repeated things? I'm looking for them. <laughs> I love seeing them. One odd thing that they brought up that had me taking a step back for a moment is they were talking about the time when Slit was on top of the Nux car and he was yelling fang it. And they heard, instead of fang it, they thought they heard something else, the um, the derogatory term for a homosexual person that oh. used to be very common but has really fallen out of favor in recent years, which, hey, I'm totally fine with. And it was odd that they brought that up. And I'm like, really? You heard that? Yeah. And they were confused by that because the word has already fallen out of popular use because people are not being as big of jerks about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're being a bit more kind, not as awful. And they said, okay, the word's already started to die out. So why would it survive into the post-apocalypse? And I thought, okay, that's an interesting way to look at it. They're kind of talking themselves out of it. And that's fine. I don't think the word makes sense at all there. And the word has other meanings. Yeah. But the other meanings don't make sense there either. Yeah, I don't know if Australia has the same slang for cigarettes that England has. And there are very few bundles of sticks in right. these movies. Very few sticks other than the poles that they use for the thunder sticks. But yeah, I just found it interesting that that's what they heard. And then they talked themselves out of it. But kicking back into the minute at hand, we fade in from black and we see what could be a person mostly buried in the sand and as the shot goes on it lasts from the 13 second mark all the way through to the 52 second mark and most of it is just a figure very still in the sand and after a while it stirs and we can see oh hey that's max and then he opens his eyes looks around and as soon as his eyes are open and realizes where he is he jumps up i think he's still in a bit of a fight or flight situation oh for sure so instead of taking a mental inventory okay are my arms broken is my back broken are my legs broken he's like oh i gotta get up right now at least that's what it looks like to me i have heard some criticism about this scene that max should have suffocated in the sand oh so i watched the scene a couple times over thinking about that and i definitely dismiss it because Max's head is clearly turned to the side. His face is not pressed down into the sand. I think maybe half of his face is pressed into the sand, but I think it's reasonable to think that he could lay in the sand like that for quite some time and mm -hmm. be okay. Yeah, I was looking on the internet for instances of people suffocating while buried in the sand, and I found something. It was published by the U.S. National Library of Medicine and National Institutes of Health, those two 
in conjunction, and it was listed on the National Center for Biotechnology Information website. And they listed three cases in detail of people suffocating in sand. In the first case, there was a woman who was beaten and then buried in sand, and she suffocated that way. There was a 42-year-old man that was smothered while unconscious, lying face down in the sand. He was hit hard in the back of the head, so he was just... He just fell down. Out like a light, face down in the sand, and then suffocated. And then there was a 17-year-old girl whose face was pressed down into the sand, and then she breathed in too much dirt and just suffocated generally. Okay. So Max sounds more like door number two. I think he could have easily found himself in a position where he was straight face down Mm -hmm. and suffocating. But instead, it's pretty much the Beyond Thunderdome situation, where when he fell down, he was in a safety situation what's the there's a position where if someone's passed out you lay them down not necessarily face down but sort of half rolled onto their side with their arm under their head and then you prop them up so that way if they spew it goes out from their body i don't know what that's called i've never heard of that before yeah i think it's just called like the unconscious safety position or something like that i don't really know specifically it makes sense so i'm definitely buying what you're selling i just don't know what it's called yeah One thing that you're probably not going to be willing to buy. (laughs) It's established in the comic books that Gastown is within quick traveling distance of Sydney. Sydney is the final place where the waiting ones, or the tribe who left, settle. Last time Max was mostly buried in the sand, he was found by Savannah. And I would have gotten such a kick out of Max being buried in the sand... And suddenly, who should walk in out of the wasteland but Savannah Nix, dressed in the furs with the awful haircut and the spears, and just finding him again. Like, poke him and be like, get up, walker. I ain't dragging you around anymore. (laughs) It would have made no sense, and no one would have known what was going on, but I would have appreciated it. I don't know if Helen Bidet would have been the best person to get back, because we're recasting a lot of roles Maybe someone who's like a lookalike or something like that. But I would have found it funny. Like she walks up, she sees him. Maybe she doesn't even wake him up. Maybe she just like turns around and be like, nope, not again. Some like skit group needs to do like little bits. (laughs) Because we say that stuff all the time. Like, oh, wouldn't it have been funny if. And someone just needs to write the skit and do it. I would be very disappointed if there were not an Australian improv group that does... Mad Max related skits that does these little post-apocalyptic vignettes with an improv style and they're all decked out in black leather and rags and things like that. (laughs) I feel like that would be funny to see. I know I've mentioned it here on the podcast before in previous seasons that there is that exact type of thing in England, in London for Jane Austen. Right. Okay. That's why I didn't remember it because it's Jane Austen themed and not Mad Max themed. But if we ever go visit London, I would very much like to see them. Yeah. I mentioned before that Max springs up from the ground because that's just the mindset that he's in. And we get some flashes. The first cutaway that we get is less than 10 frames. And it's a splash of molten material that fills the frame. We cut back to Max and he's standing. He's doing like this little wincing straining thing and his hands are all weird. We get another flash of more lava in a volcanic landscape and it's him just looking around disoriented and the final one we get is 
another red background. It's not lava this time, though. Earlier in the movie, when he was in the flooded hallway, we get that shot of him pulling his face out of the water. It's that, but it's red tinted. Okay, like they use the same footage? Yeah. It's cut very short, obviously, because the whole shot is six frames. Mm -hmm. But I'm able to click through these things, so I can be obnoxious and pick out the tiny little things. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you can, because I can't. Thinking about this volcano imagery, I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. Is it literal? Is it metaphorical? Is it a dreamscape? I'm really not sure. Well, on the one hand, he's erupting from the earth, you know, bursting out of the sand, kind of like lava bursting out of a volcano or some sort of hole like that. There's also the idea that maybe his blood is boiling. He's starting to feel the ill effects of having a line tapped into his veins, that sort of thing. The final shot of him pulling his head out of the water definitely gives the sense that he feels like he's underwater or something like that. That his senses are still impaired from the accident, that he's not quite up to snuff yet. Yes, he's very uh, disoriented. And the way that he plays it with the pulling his shoulders in and his hands being like he wants to protect himself, but he also needs his hands to be out to be defensive weapons. Yep. He's like torn on how to treat his hands. It's so well played. And I think it transmits an emotion to us that's hard to put into words. Mm -hmm. It's hard to really identify it, but we all know exactly what he's feeling. Yeah. When he was talking at the beginning of the movie about he's a man reduced to a single instinct survive, it's not like it was back in Road Warrior where the interceptor was rolled and he dragged himself out of the car in order to hide. Enough time has passed that he's up, he's scanning the horizon, and like you said, he needs to have his hands out in order to defend himself, but he still feels very vulnerable from the accident he was just in, so his shoulders are in, but he's trying to put his body into a situation where if he needs to fend someone off, like he's fighting between his body saying, hey, we were just in a very traumatic accident, versus his mind saying, I need to be on guard immediately it's a weird fight or flight thing and he's clearly stuck in the fight even though his body wants him to flight (laughs) 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 it may not work with the way i say it that way but you get the idea certainly the moment that max pushes himself up out of the sand the way the sand comes up it looks like bird's wings and it reminds me very much of the bird imagery from thunderdome I've watched it over and over again, and that profile is really just created by the sand and how Tom Hardy pushes his shoulders up, pops that sand up off of his shoulders, creating these big wings spread wide. And then you immediately see the restraint of the chain, stopping that bird from actually taking off. Just like Max was tied down in the crack in the earth so that he wouldn't fly away. Yep. Sound-wise, that 13-second to 52-second range starts off very quiet, and the first thing that we hear is the trickling of sand as it falls off of Max, and then as Max pushes himself up, you get that whoosh that accompanies all of the sand being thrown up. And then as soon as he's standing, and we'll definitely talk about this on Wednesday, everything just sounds off. And so we'll touch a little bit more on that on Wednesday when we come back and talk more about it. Speaking of Wednesday, 
We'll catch up with Max. He's gonna follow the rule of three by first getting a hold of himself, then getting a hold of Nux, and rounding it all out by getting a hold of a shotgun. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 31 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.